Section 20 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Curtis Matson. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 11, Part 1. Of the jurisdiction of the Church, and the abuses of it, as exemplified in the Papacy. This chapter may be conveniently comprehended under two heads. Roman numeral 1. Ecclesiastical jurisdiction, its necessity, origin, description, and essential parts, namely the sacred ministry of the word and discipline of excommunication, of which the aim, use, and abuse are explained. Sections 1 through 8. Roman numeral 2. Refutation of the arguments advanced by papists in defense of the tyranny of pontiffs, the right of both swords, imperial pomp and dignity, foreign jurisdiction, and immunity from civil jurisdiction. Sections 9 through 16. Sections. Number 1. The power of the Church in regard to jurisdiction. The necessity, origin, and nature of this jurisdiction. The power of the keys to be considered in two points of view. The first view expounded. Number 2. Second view expounded. How the Church binds and looses in the way of discipline. Abuse of the keys in the papacy. Number 3. The discipline of excommunication of perpetual endurance. Distinction between civil and ecclesiastical power. Number 4. The perpetual endurance of the discipline of excommunication confirmed. Duly ordered under the emperors and Christian magistrates. Number 5. The aim and use of ecclesiastical jurisdiction in the primitive church. Spiritual power was kept entirely distinct from the power of the sword. Number 6. Spiritual power was not administered by one individual, but by a lawful consistory. Gradual change. First, the clergy alone interfered in the judicial proceedings of the church. The bishop afterwards appropriated them to himself. Number 7. The bishops afterwards transferred the rights thus appropriated to their officials, and converted spiritual jurisdiction into a profane tribunal. Number 8. Recapitulation. The papal power confuted. Christ wished to debar the ministers of the word from civil rule and worldly power. Number 9. Objections of the papists. 1. By this external splendor the glory of Christ is displayed. 2. It does not interfere with the duties of their calling. Both objections answered. Number 10. The commencement and gradual progress of the papistical tyranny. Causes 1. Curiosity 2. Ambition 3. Violence 4. Hypocrisy 5. Impiety Number 11. 
last cause, the mystery of iniquity, and the satanic fury of Antichrist usurping worldly domination. The Pope claims both swords. Number 12. The pretended donation of Constantine. Its futility exposed. Number 13. When and by what means the Roman pontiffs attained to imperial dignity. Hildebrand, its founder. Number 14. By what acts they seized on Rome and other territories. Disgraceful rapacity. Number 15. Claim of immunity from civil jurisdiction. Contrast between this pretended immunity and the moderation of the early bishops. Number 16. What end the early bishops aimed at in steadfastly resisting civil encroachment? Number 1. It remains to consider the third, and indeed, when matters are well arranged, the principal part of ecclesiastical power, which, as we have said, consists in jurisdiction. Now, the whole jurisdiction of the Church relates to discipline, of which we are shortly to treat. For as no city or village can exist without a magistrate and government, so the Church of God, as I have already taught, but am again obliged to repeat, needs a kind of spiritual government. This is altogether distinct from civil government, and is so far from impeding or impairing it, that it rather does much to aid and promote it. Therefore, this power of jurisdiction is, in one word, nothing but the order provided for the preservation of spiritual polity. To this end, there were established in the Church from the first tribunals which might take cognizance of morals, animadvert on vices, and exercise the office of the keys. This order is mentioned by Paul in the first epistle to the Corinthians under the name of governments, 1 Corinthians 12:28. In like manner, in the epistle to the Romans, when he says, quote, he that ruleth with diligence, unquote, Romans 12:8. For he is not addressing magistrates, none of whom were then Christians, but those who were joined with pastors in the spiritual government of the church. In the epistle to Timothy also, he mentions two kinds of presbyters, some who labor in the word, and others who do not perform the office of preaching, but rule well, 1 Timothy 5.17. By this latter class, there is no doubt he means those who were appointed to the inspection of manners, and the whole use of the keys. For the power of which we speak wholly depends on the keys which Christ bestowed on the church in the 18th chapter of Matthew, where he orders that those who despise private admonition should be sharply rebuked in public. And if they persist in their contumacy, he expelled from the society of believers. Moreover, those admonitions and corrections cannot be made without investigation, and hence the necessity of some judicial procedure and order. Wherefore, 
if we would not make void the promise of the keys and abolish altogether excommunication solemn admonitions and everything of that description we must of necessity give some jurisdiction to the church let the reader observe that we are not here treating of the general authority of doctrine as in matthew twenty one and john twenty but maintaining that the right of the sanhedrin is transferred to the fold of christ till that time the power of government had belonged to the jews this christ establishes in his church in as far as it was a pure institution and with a heavy sanction thus it behoved to be since the judgment of a poor and despised church might otherwise be spurned by rash and haughty men and lest it occasion any difficulty to the reader that christ in the same words makes a considerable difference between the two things it will here be proper to explain there are two passages which speak of binding and loosing the one is matthew sixteen where christ after promising that he will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven to peter immediately adds quote, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven matthew sixteen nineteen. these words have the very same meaning as those in the gospel of john where being about to send forth the disciples to preach after breathing on them he says quote, whosoever sins ye remit they are remitted unto them and whosoever sins ye retain they are retained unquote. john twenty twenty three. i will give an interpretation not subtle not forced not rested but genuine natural and obvious this command concerning remitting and retaining sins and that promise made to peter concerning binding and loosing ought to be referred to nothing but the ministry of the word when the lord committed it to the apostles he at the same time provided them with this power of binding and loosing for what is the sum of the gospel but just that all being the slaves of sin and death are loosed and set free by the redemption which is in christ jesus while those who do not receive and acknowledge christ as a deliverer and redeemer are condemned and doomed to eternal chains when the lord delivered this message to his apostles to be carried by them into all nations in order to prove that it was his own message and proceeded from him he honored it with this distinguished testimony and that as an admirable confirmation both to the apostles themselves and to all those to whom it was to come it was of importance that the apostles should have a constant and complete assurance of their preaching which they were not only to exercise with infinite labor anxiety molestation and peril but ultimately to seal with their blood that they might know that it was not vain or void but full of power and efficacy 
It was of importance, I say, that amidst all their anxieties, dangers, and difficulties, they might feel persuaded that they were doing the work of God, that though the whole world withstood and opposed them, they might know that God was for them, that not having Christ the author of their doctrine bodily present on the earth, they might understand that he was in heaven to confirm the truth of the doctrine which he had delivered to them. On the other hand, it was necessary that their hearers should be most certainly assured that the doctrine of the gospel was not the word of the apostles, but of God himself, not a voice rising from the earth, but descending from heaven. For such things as the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, and message of salvation cannot be in the power of man. Christ therefore testified that in the preaching of the gospel the apostles only acted ministerially, that it was he who by their mouths as organs spoke and promised all, that therefore the forgiveness of sins which they announced was the true promise of God, the condemnation which they pronounced, the certain judgment of God. This attestation was given to all ages and remains firm, rendering all certain and secure that the word of the gospel, by whomsoever it may be preached, is the very word of God promulgated at the supreme tribunal, written in the book of life, ratified firm and fixed in heaven. We now understand that the power of the keys is simply the preaching of the gospel in those places, and insofar as men are concerned, it is not so much power as ministry. Properly speaking, Christ did not give this power to men but to his word, of which he made men the ministers. Number two. The other passage, in which binding and loosing are mentioned, is in the eighteenth chapter of Matthew, where Christ says, quote, If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Unquote. Matthew eighteen seventeen and 18. This passage is not altogether similar to the former, but it is to be understood somewhat differently. But in saying that they are different, I do not mean that there is not much affinity between them. First, they are similar in this, that they are both general statements, that there is always the same power of binding and loosing, namely, by the word of God, the same command, the same promise. They differ in this, that the former passage relates specially to the preaching which the ministers of the word perform, the latter relates to the discipline of excommunication which has been committed to the church. Now, the church binds him whom she excommunicates, not by plunging him into eternal ruin and despair, 
but condemning his life and manners, and admonishing him that unless he repent, he is condemned. She looses him when she receives into communion, because she makes him, as it were, a partaker of the unity which she has in Christ Jesus. Let no one, therefore, contumaciously despise the judgment of the church, or account it a small matter that he is condemned by the suffrages of the faithful. The Lord testifies that such judgments of the faithful is nothing less than the promulgation of his own sentence, and that what they do on earth is ratified in heaven. For they have the word of God, by which they condemn the perverse. They have the word by which they take back the penitent into favor. Now they cannot err nor disagree with the judgment of God, because they judge only according to the law of God, which is not an uncertain or worldly opinion, but the holy will of God, an oracle of heaven. On these two passages, which I think I have briefly, as well as familiarly and truly expounded, these madmen, without any discrimination, as they are borne along by their spirit of giddiness, attempt to found at one time confession, at another excommunication, at another jurisdiction, at another the right of making laws, at another indulgences. The former passage they adduce for the purpose of rearing up the primacy of the Roman see. So well known are the keys to those who have thought proper to fit them with locks and doors, that you would say their whole life has been spent in the mechanic art. Number three. Some, in imagining that all these things were temporary, as magistrates were still strangers to our profession of religion, are led astray by not observing the distinction and dissimilarity between ecclesiastical and civil power. For the church has not the right of the sword to punish or restrain, has no power to coerce, no prison, nor other punishments which the magistrate is wont to inflict. Then the object in view is not to punish the sinner against his will, but to obtain a profession of penitence by voluntary chastisement. The two things, therefore, are widely different, because neither does the church assume anything to herself which is proper to the magistrate, nor is the magistrate competent to what is done by the church. This will be made clearer by an example. Does anyone get intoxicated? In a well-ordered city his punishment will be imprisonment. Has he committed whoredom? The punishment will be similar, or rather more severe. Thus satisfaction will be given to the laws, the magistrates, and the external tribunal. But the consequences will be that the offender will give no signs of repentance, but will rather fret and murmur. Will the church not here interfere? Such persons cannot be admitted to the Lord's Supper without doing injury to Christ and his sacred institution. Reason demands that he who, by a bad example, gives offense to the church, shall remove the offense which he has caused by a formal declaration of repentance. The reason adduced by those who take a contrary view is frigid. Christ, they say, gave this office to the church 
when there were no magistrates to execute it. But it often happens that the magistrate is negligent, nay, sometimes himself requires to be chastised, as was the case with the Emperor Theodosius. Moreover, the same thing may be said regarding the whole ministry of the word. Now, therefore, according to that view, let pastors cease to censure manifest iniquities. Let them cease to chide, accuse, and rebuke. For there are Christian magistrates who ought to correct these things by the law and the sword. But as the magistrate ought to purge the church of offenses by corporal punishment and coercion, so the minister ought, in his turn, to assist the magistrate in diminishing the number of offenders. Thus they ought to combine their efforts, the one being not an impediment, but a help to the other. Number four. And indeed, on attending more closely to the words of Christ, it will readily appear that the state and order of the church there described is perpetual, not temporary. For it were incongruous that those who refuse to obey our admonitions should be transferred to the magistrate. Of course, however, which would be necessary if he were to succeed to the place of the church. Why should the promise, quote, Verily I say unto you, What things soever you shall bind on earth, unquote, be limited to one, or to a few years? Moreover, Christ has here made no new enactment, but followed the custom already observed in the church of his ancient people, thereby intimating that the church cannot dispense with the spiritual jurisdiction which existed from the beginning. This has been confirmed by the consent of all times. For when emperors and magistrates began to assume the Christian name, spiritual jurisdiction was not forthwith abolished, but was only so arranged as not in any respect to impair civil jurisdiction, and to be confounded with it, and justly. For the magistrate, if he is pious, will have no wish to exempt himself from the common subjection of the children of God, not the least part of which is to subject himself to the church, judging according to the word of God. So far is it from being his duty to abolish that judgment. For as Ambrose says, quote, what more honorable title can an emperor have than to be called a son of the church? A good emperor is within the church, not above the church. Unquote. Those, therefore, who to adorn the magistrate strip the church of this power, not only corrupt the sentiment of Christ by a false interpretation, but pass no light condemnation on the many holy bishops who have existed since the days of the apostles, for having, on a false pretext, usurped the honor and office of the civil magistrate. Number five. But on the other hand, it will be proper to see what was anciently the true use of ecclesiastical discipline, and how great the abuses which crept in, that we may know what of ancient practice is to be abolished and what restored, if we would, after overthrowing the kingdom of Antichrist, again set up the true kingdom of Christ. First, the object in view 
is to prevent the occurrence of scandals, and when they arise, to remove them. In the use, two things are to be considered. First, that this spiritual power be altogether distinct from the power of the sword. Secondly, that it be not administered at the will of one individual, but by a lawful consistory. 1 Corinthians 5.4 Both were observed in the purer times of the church. For holy bishops did not exercise their power by fine, imprisonment, or other civil penalties, but as became them, employed the word of God only. For the severest punishment of the church, and as it were her last thunderbolt, is excommunication, which is not used unless in necessity. This, moreover, requires neither violence nor physical force, but is contented with the might of the word of God. In short, the jurisdiction of the ancient church was nothing else than, if I may so speak, a practical declaration of what Paul teaches concerning the spiritual power of pastors. Quote, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6 As this is done by the preaching of doctrine, so in order that doctrine may not be held in derision, those who profess to be of the household of faith ought to be judged according to the doctrine which is taught. Now, this cannot be done without connecting with the office of the ministry a right of summoning those who are to be privately admonished or sharply rebuked, a right, moreover, of keeping back from the communion of the Lord's Supper those who cannot be admitted without profaning this high ordinance. Hence, when Paul elsewhere asks, quote, What have I to do to judge them also that are without? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 5.12. He makes the members of the church subject to censures for the correction of their vices, and intimates the existence of tribunals from which no believer is exempted. Number 6. This power, as we have already stated, did not belong to an individual who could exercise it as he pleased, but belonged to the consistory of elders which was in the church what a council is in a city. Cyprian, when mentioning those by whom it was exercised in his time, usually associates the whole clergy with the bishop. In another place he shows that, though the clergy presided, the people, at the same time, were not excluded from cognizance. For he thus writes, quote, From the commencement of my bishopric, I determined to do nothing without the advice of the clergy, nothing without the consent of the people." Unquote. But the common and usual method of exercising this jurisdiction was by the Council of Presbyters, of whom, as I have said, there were two classes. Some were for teaching, others were only censors of manners. This institution 
gradually degenerated from its primitive form, so that, in the time of Ambrose, the clergy alone had cognizance of ecclesiastical causes. Of this he complains in the following terms, quote, The ancient synagogue, and afterwards the church, had elders, without whose advice nothing was done. This has grown obsolete, by whose fault I know not, unless it be by the sloth, or rather the pride, of teachers, who would have it seem that they only are somewhat." Unquote. We see how indignant this holy man was, because the better state was in some degree impaired, and yet the order which then existed was at least tolerable. What, then, had he seen those shapeless ruins which exhibit no trace of the ancient edifice? How would he have lamented? First, contrary to what was right and lawful, the bishop appropriated to himself what was given to the whole church. For this is just as if the council had expelled the senate and usurped the whole empire. For as he is superior in rank to the others, so the authority of the consistory is greater than that of one individual. It was, therefore, a gross iniquity when one man, transferring the common power to himself, paved the way for a tyrannical license, robbed the church of what was its own, suppressed and discarded the consistory ordained by the Spirit of Christ. End of section 20 Recording by Curtis Matson, Wheaton, Illinois.